0: Good morning everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, thanks Jenny for leading us to this morning. That song just made me think of uh, a recent experience I had with it and it was in a room of pastors at the uh, Mennonite Brethren Pastors Retreat in Kelowna and I had the opportunity of leading them all in worship and introduced this song, The Goodness of God. We just sang it and uh during the day, they had testimonies, and they were sharing, and really, really hard stuff, like uh, people battling with cancer, death, um, chi- children that have left home, and really, really hard struggles. And uh, I just kind of second-guessed myself. Maybe I should be singing this song, The Goodness of God. Things don't seem very good right now. Maybe we should do a song about the trials of God, or the suffering of life. And... Uh, I just felt, yeah, we'll still do it. We'll still sing the song, and the 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 reference to the song, the goodness of God, comes from this quote from the Psalms: um, "Surely, your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life." And the the word "follow" it is better, I think, interpreted "pursue" or like chase after. And um, and these pastors in the room, they had a Understanding of this because when I led this song, even after these really deep, hard, hard stories, just this amazing response to worship hands raised, tears coming down, just like totally surrendered to God and singing this at the top of their lungs All my life, you have been faithful, and your goodness is running after me. And uh, I say that just, I guess, um, to be inspired that. That uh, God's goodness doesn't have to be only when things are easy or great, but God's goodness can be seen even in the in the midst of difficult. I look around this room and I see, yeah, real situations, real things that are going on, and uh, His His goodness is running after us. I think it's a great segue too into what we're going to be focusing on for the next three weeks. Um, by the way, for those of you who don't know me, you're like, who's this guy with the microphone? My name is Scott, and I'm the pastor of Community Formation with Artisan, and um, just honored to be uh, in the pulpit or the lectern or the music stand this morning. And uh, we're kicking off a brief series on the topic of worship. And uh, we're taking a bit of a hiatus from the Apostles Creed, which we've been in for several weeks now. and we're going to do three parts on the worship uh, on worship and then back to the Apostles Creed. Um, And then back into the third and final section of the Apostles' Creed, which starts off, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to kick that off on Pentecost Sunday, so perfectly timed. Um, And uh, the Creed series will go to the end of July, but like I said, we're going to pause here. And uh, I love this. I think in some ways this is the perfect interruption. And I think of this quote by, I've heard J.I. Packer, but other people say it, theology leads to doxology. And so, uh, in a way, we've been looking at a lot of theology, what who God is like, God's character, things about God. Um, but all theology needs to and must lead to an expression that is doxology, uh, giving glory to God, or worshiping, you could say. And so, uh, if we focus just on theology, I think we get a bit stale, maybe, or trapped in our minds, and in understanding only, but... Doxology allows us to uh, go ex- uh, to express what we've heard, to express the truth, to to kind of exhale God's goodness in a way. Uh, so hopefully this these next three weeks will be a bit of a chance to exhale and to pause, to reflect on what we've been looking at, the goodness of God, who God is in all the various forms. And... Um, and hopefully not just a chance to focus on worship, but to do worship, if that makes sense. A chance to go deeper into God. And uh, perhaps this is a helpful metaphor, perhaps not. But uh, I've recently discovered this underwater museum that exists in Mexico. And it's called Musa. Maybe you've heard about it. There's a few pictures up on the screen. An underwater museum, and there's over 500 sculptures in this particular museum, and there's uh, various ways you can view the art. You can rent a glass-bottom boat, and you can look through and see the pictures. You can see the art. You can also snorkel and kind of hover around the surface. Uh, But on the website, and I quote, the best way to visit the sculptures is scuba diving. Since the sculptures are located eight meters deep in most places, the best way, I think, to to visit the sculptures, the best way to see who God is, is to dive deep into Him. And so, this is an invitation, I think, these three weeks to dive deeper into God, into this topic, but also into God, as we sang, uh, the love of God, um, measureless that it would take an ocean of paper to write about the love of God, and we still wouldn't have enough, that he, he's he got room to spare. There's always more to explore and to see and to experience with God, that he's so vast, so great, yet so person- personable. And um, I think this is what it means. We've been talking a lot about the river. We talked about that. That was the theme for our church retreat this year, was the river. I think this is what it means to be in the river, the flow of the river, to, uh, to surrender to that, to dive deeper into. So with that all in mind, today we're going to start off by going into John 4 and look at a story. Maybe it's familiar to you, maybe it's not. It's uh, Jesus and the Samaritan woman. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to page uh, 741, and the story goes to 741-742, Um, the Bibles are on your chairs. Uh, I'm not going to have the words up here, so I really encourage you to open up and follow along with me today. And through this little journey today, this morning, I hope to answer a few things, but some of them being what worship is, what worship does, and what worship is for. Um, So with all that in mind, let's pray, and let's, uh, let's enter into the Scripture. Thank you, God, for your goodness that runs after us, uh, not just follows us around politely, but chases us and pursues us. I pray, Lord, that we could um, we could dive into your goodness, dive into your love, and who you are, your character, and experience you more fully. I pray that the words of Scripture, God, would speak to us, jump out at us this morning. And uh, in spite of my words, in spite of my preparation and my notes, God, I pray that you would speak deeply to us, that you would meet us here in this place. For you are a good and living God who is with and near and for, and we love you. Amen. Okay, let's read John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. In verse 9 here, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's kind of lightly played. Like it was they were avoiding each other. These people had a colorful past that went on for centuries. And um, the fact that Jesus was even engaging her was quite an odd sight. And John, the author of this book, he paints this odd picture. And he tells the story and points out these details. Highlights them to make us feel a bit uncomfortable. Especially his his uh, Jewish listeners that are listening to this. But Jews and Samaritans were not uh, associated, mainly because the Jews viewed Samaritans as a mixed breed. They were a marginalized group. They were not loved by God in their minds. You don't deal with these people. In fact, you avoid them. Even if it means making a shorter journey much longer, you do that. You go around Samaria. You don't go through Samaria. Jesus, what does he do? What does he does? What does he do? He goes through Samaria. And also another thing that's a little bit strange you might not pick up from the text is it's in the heat of the day. Most people, from what I understand, would draw their water in the mornings when it was cool. And this woman is in the heat of the day at noon, grabbing water from the well. So some say that there might have been uh, more going on there, that she was trying to avoid people, that she was carrying some shame from her past. So she just didn't want to deal with that. I'm going to the well. Even if it means I'm going to sweat my body, I'm going to go to the well and ignore these people. I'm going to get away from all the talk and all the gossip, and I'm going to to go here in a calm place. Lo and behold, she runs into Jesus. He's there, and he asks her for a drink of water. Simple enough. Let's read on. 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Hmm, living water. And we, we know when we're reading this story, we know it's Jesus, and we know a bit about Jesus and who he is. So we know, and we jump maybe right away to, there's some spiritual things going on here. There's something greater than just water. But she didn't really know that at first. She's just having this conversation with Jesus and she's seeing maybe there's something deeper here, but maybe it's physical. So yeah, I'm curious about this living water, and I think John does this on purpose. So the woman's curious. She's wondering is there a better source of water than the one I've been drawing from? And interesting to note, living water was also a phrase that people used in that day to refer to water that was flowing and clean, like a stream or a river. So she's like, if you know of a better source, then tell me, I want to know. I want in on this better source, this living water. And Jesus is referring to a better source, a full and unfailing flow, similar to a fresh stream or river, but better. And we find out why it's better. Let's read ahead. John chapter 4, verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. So she's still trying to get this physical, she's still in the physical world here. How are we going to get the living water? And you have nothing to draw. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So she's referring to the person that built this well, the, the well of Jacob, and gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Are you greater than this? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus is promising that her thirst will be quenched, and not just in a physical way, but a spiritual way. So of course, now she, her curiosity is captured. She, she wants what Jesus is talking about. Let's keep reading. In verse 16, he told her interesting response. So we, the whole water conversation, yes, I'm in. Tell me where it is. And he says, go call your husband and come back. Okay. She's like, I have no husband, she replied. Uh, Jesus said to her, yeah, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is, what, have you, what you just have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So I don't think, there's many ways you can read this. I don't think Jesus is being like, hey, hey girl, you got five husbands. Like, let's deal with this right now. I think, I think what he's doing is he's showing her a little bit. Like, hey, I know you. I see you. I'm here. I'm not, I'm not just this passerby. There's something more there's something more here. So she says, I see that you are a prophet. You, the gift of prophecy is obviously in you. No one's ever told you this. And maybe in a way the ball drops for her a bit. She realizes something deeper is happening. Kind of an oh moment. And uh, the object of importance for her shifts, and I think this is an important shift from the jar to Jesus Or from the physical to the spiritual. And this is where I think the story turns into being about worship. I think there's actually a lot to be said, like I said at the beginning, uh, about worship in this story. Let's keep reading in verse 20. And we're going to see this word mentioned about ten times in the next few verses. Verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then this famous verse, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've not, if you've been raised in the church. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. I had a, an encounter with this verse in a very real way. I just want to share quickly because it's so significant for me. And um, I, In my 21st year, went to a Bible college in Australia, a very charismatic church. And the worship services were incredible, like like uh, full production, stage band, lights, everyone. it seemed like everyone was raising their hands and dancing at the same time. It was like it, just this intense and powerful experience of worship. and I was like wrapped up into this as a young kid, well, 21, not too young, but young came into this environment, and I found myself just joining in, like doing all the motions, dancing, lifting my hands, singing out, entering into worship. And I had this moment, and I've told this story before, so maybe you've heard it, but I had this one moment where I was in this worship service. We were singing a song. My hands were raised, just like the, the other 1,000 people in the room. And uh, just for a second, this intense doubt crept in. And I, ha- I had my hands raised, and I just for a second just lost, kind of, I stepped out of the spiritual and into this physical embodied world where I looked around and I saw all these people raising their hands. And I was doing the same thing, and I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> just had this moment, like, what is happening here? Like, And then slowly, I just, like, my hands started to drop, and I just was like, is this even real? like is God even here? Are we actually worshiping him? I'm having this like atheistic crisis moment in the middle of this worship service and this, this scripture came to mind was those who worship worship him in spirit and in truth. For God it says God is spirit. And, and it just dawned on me. it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter what the physical is. It doesn't matter what we do with our hands or sing. I don't have to because God is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. And so in that moment, my atheism turned to theism and my hands were up again. I was like, "Yahoo!" it was just this. It was this instant like conversion in my spirit where I felt like, oh, I don't have to do this. Yes, I'm going to. And I think that's a good, that, that sums up or maybe is helpful in how we worship and how we respond You know, there's a lot of different church backgrounds represented here and a lot of different ways in which we express worship. And maybe some of you think there is a right or wrong way. Um, The right way is in spirit and in truth, that we approach him that way, and the response will take care of itself. And the word, it's so interesting, the word that's mentioned 10 times in this passage is proskunuo, and it is a Greek word, which is translated worship, or adore, or bow down, lay prostrate, fall down before. This word is different than the word for worship that we see in Romans 12. Maybe you're familiar with that passage in verse 2. Offer your bodies, Paul says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So there he's talking about a lifestyle of worship, and the word worship there is translated more service. So how we serve God is our worship to him. And I kind of wish we had more words to describe worship than our one in the English language. Like in the Greek language, I think there's like six different ones. And so the one in Romans 12 is talking about service. There's other ones that talk about uh, sacramental duties and things like that. Uh, John 4 is talking about bowing down. It could be an actual physical bowing down, but what I think it's referring to is a heart posture, to bow down, to lay down. Another translation of that word, proskunuo, is doing reverence. I love that. I love, mostly just I love it because it's improper English, and if you've hung out with me, you know that I love improper English because I don't know grammar. I don't do the grammar so well. But this this phrase just stuck out to me, doing reverence. It's active. It's this attitude of reverence. Thank you. Oh, (laughs) I guess my my mouth is dry. (sighs) Note taken. Anything else you want to fix? Okay. (laughs) That goes for all of you, if you'd like to... Uh, where was I? Doing reverence. That's what I was doing. Yeah, I just I love this. It's a, an active phrase that we we enter into is worship. Worshiping in spirit and truth is is doing reverence. A question for you this morning: What are you doing reverence to? Or where in your life are you doing reverence? Where where does that take place? Because I think. It happens not just toward God. It's not just toward a deity, but I think we do reverence in other places in our life. I think we bow to other things. So what are, what are we bowing to? And this affects us and it shapes us, the way we worship or what we worship. And uh, James K.A. Smith, he's got two great books. One is Desiring the Kingdom. He's got other great books too, but these are two good ones. Desire in the kingdom, and one that we might be more familiar with is uh, the next one, You Are What You Love. We did a table group on this last year, I believe. And uh, in it, he talks about this anthropology of desire. And he states that we are desiring beings, beings, not just thinking beings. So he's talking about education. He's talking about worship, that it's not just enough to think or to understand I think, for for therefore I am. Uh, but it's what we love is what shapes us. And he says, we are what we love, and our love is shaped, primed, and aimed by liturgical practices that take hold of our gut and aim our heart to certain ends. Uh, and in this quote, he's not just talking about church or sacred liturgical uh, practices. He's actually referring to... Different ways in which we bow. So he uses the example of a mall, or, um, you know, we could put in our fill in the blank there, but what other liturgical practices in our life, like Netflix, like, you know, fill in the blank, what things are shaping us because we are desiring beings? So with, it, with this in mind, I think worship can look uh, a number of different ways. And instead of talking about them or speaking them, there's a there's a few images here on the screen that show a number of different forms of worship and worship happening You really could put anything up on the screen. The, the, the point is that we, we put things in that place. We bow to things. We respect them. We are reverent toward them. And what James K. Smith is saying, that shapes us. That makes us into certain types of people. And so the question is, then what is shaping us? What are those things that we're bowing to? And these things are not bad in and of themselves, but when they take the center spot, as Lance was talking about last week, that spot is supposed to be reserved for God. But when we when we kick Him out of the center of the garden, if you hadn't listened to the podcast or you weren't here last week, please do. It's a powerful moment where we just, yeah, just reminded again that Jesus is is supposed to be in that center spot. When we kick Him out, that's when I think is problematic. When those things are a primary source of our identity, uh, they fail. But like we sang this morning, God's love, his goodness, who he is, is an unending well. And this is why we shape our gatherings this morning. we're We're part of a shaping experience right now. And another word for that is formation. But this is why we structure our gatherings like this. The four movements of entering, we have a prayer, we say an opening prayer together, we come into the space with intention, hearing, which is part of this moment, and the scripture hearing, and uh, all the the parts in there from uh, into the sermon, and then responding is after where we respond to the word. We do that in multiple ways. We come to the table, which we're going to do again today. We, we sing songs of worship, we pray, and then we're sent out again. This is, this is why we shape our gatherings like this. And hopefully, what it does, it shapes us, it refocuses us, and it refocuses our desires. How many times have you come to a gathering on Sunday and you're like, oh, right, like reminded again? Or, oh yeah, I've put that thing in the middle of the garden again and it's not supposed to be there. And we do that again and again and again and again because we're always battling who gets the center spot, who's, who's getting the focus of our attention, the focus of our worship. And I, I want to camp out here on the hearing part because we're in that moment right now. But also, again, it's kind of referring to this theology to doxology so we hear and then we respond. Even in this moment, doxology could be happening or response could be happening in our spirits. And it's, all, it's about revelation and response. We hear something, we learn it, feels that it's true, it resonates in us, sometimes even causes emotion or thought or curiosity, and then we respond out of that. Um, the lectionary reading today, for instance, Psalm 148, just filled with, these radical statements about who God is, and then it says in the response, "Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created, and He established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away." That Psalm Psalm 148 was filled, just filled with attributes and uh, titles of who God is and what He's doing. But then in this in this uh, verse in in uh, In chapter 4, there's this part in verse 20, if you go back to your Bibles. He says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. So what's going on there? And just humor me for a moment and follow along with me. I promise you it's going to be worth it, but we're just going to kind of nerd out a little bit on uh, the story of Christian worship throughout the entire biblical narrative. I promise you it's only going to take a few minutes. Um, But as we chart the history and the narrative of Christian worship, I think that there's stuff to glean from this. So we start in Moses' tabernacle. And here's a picture of the tabernacle. Moses was instructed to build this thing. And the Israelites, who were nomadic people, were traveling around. And actually, people think that this was a model of the relationship of God and Adam and Eve in Eden, that the presence of God was with them so real and so true, they could converse with him. And so Moses is kind of recreating the Garden of Eden in a way. And so you have an entrance, which you can't clearly see, but it would have been a colorful doorway, and around would have been a white uh, cloth barrier. So you could come in, and in the middle, there was a place to sacrifice animals, and that blood would then go into the holy place, which was in the tent, and in the holy place, place there was even a holy of holies place the most holy place so they would take the blood to atone for the sins of Israel they'd take the blood and pray for the people and only a priest could do that not everyone could enter the tabernacle so skip forward a few thousand years or a few hundred years and we have the temple which is modeled after the tabernacle so Moses idea of the tabernacle is rebirthed in the temple it's a stationary place now where you can kind of see the similar elements here, the the most holy place is quite large and quite uh, it's a huge structure, but there's still a place for sacrifice. There's also the washing basin, which we saw in the tabernacle too, and there's this court, uh, there's this wall that surrounds it because not everyone can enter whenever they want, but only the priests who were commissioned to do that could go in. Skip forward, we go to. Herod's temple, which is kind of a refurbishment of this, except it started becoming corrupt and was used to glorify the position of the Herod, of, the, uh, of Herod, and in John 4, we come here in this story with the Jews and the Samaritans and this common ground of the Jacob's well story, and then we get to where Jesus changes things. And he says, a time is coming and now has come where true worshipers will worship, not on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but in the spirit and in truth. And just a note about this, that we are on the other side of this story now. So he's talking about something that's going to happen. And now we're looking at it. It's happened. This has happened. Jesus has changed this. And it's easy to understand this phrase of spirit and truth negatively to mean that worship is no longer tied to sacred sites. But what does it mean positively? And I like, to, I like what Eugene Peterson wrote and how he translated this passage. John 4, 23, 24 in the message says, your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, Spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. I think this is right. I think there's a, an essence of like, yes, out of who you truly are. But also, I would add to that, is also the worship, worshiping through the Holy Spirit. And in the previous chapter in John 3, we see what it means to be reborn in the Spirit. John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And the story, thankfully, does not end there. But when we go to the cross, we see Jesus taking on that sacrifice now. And I love this. We're going to read this whole passage in Hebrews 11. It's up on the screen. Check it out. But when Christ came as high priest, see that high priest language, which was very familiar with Israel and entering the Holy of Holies, that place? He came as our high priest, so now Christ is the high priest of the good things that are now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those whom are ceremonial, unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ now is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Even symbolically, what does this mean? Basically, when Jesus' death happened, I don't know if you know this part of the story, but the veil that separated people from going into the presence of God, into the holy of holies, the most holy place, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was torn, symbolically to say that now his presence is accessible anywhere, by anyone. You don't have to have a priest. You don't have to be Jewish. But through Jesus, you can enter into the spirit of God, into the presence of God. And in Acts 2, it's released to all people. God's spirit comes in fire and fills the space that the follower's in. This is is the reason we can worship at the Japanese hall. We don't have to be in a Jewish synagogue or with Jewish people or do it a certain way. We've The doors have been open. People now, we can worship all around the world, all in different ways and forms, using music and using our culture and using who we are. It's beautiful. It's pretty powerful. It's more powerful than I'm communicating it right now. Read, uh, it says, read Hebrews 13. Let's do that. 15, 16. So, what are the sacrifices left that we have to do? Jesus said there's no sacrifices. You don't have to, you don't have to kill a goat or a lamb and spill the blood to come in. These are the two sacrifices that remain. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So, first, sacrifice is praise. And I think that's a, a good way to say it. Sometimes it doesn't feel easy it feels like a sacrifice that we you're giving up something and we are and do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices god is pleased and in matthew 22 i think a great verse about worship love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and what is the second following love your neighbor as yourself All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so there's this worship of God which leads us to love of people and I can't talk about worship without talking about mission and moving outward. Uh, Walter Brueggemann says this, one of the misfortunes in the long history of the church is that we have mistakenly separated love of God from love of neighbor and always they're held together in prophetic poetry. Worship leads to mission or Upward leads to outward. They're connected. And we see how the Samaritan woman's encounter with Jesus leads her to share this with others as well. So if you look in verse 39, back to the scripture, chapter 4, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. He he knows me. This, come and see this real God, is what she's saying. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And if there's one thing that you leave with today, this was uh, it. just kind of hit me so powerfully Uh, we talked about this in our neighborhood group we went through uh, John chapter 4 and there's just this one tiny little verse that is so powerful and I think it kind of encapsulates everything I'm trying to say this morning in verse 28 so this is after Jesus talks with her. they talk about the living water and then she runs off to go tell others the village comes back people come to a revelation of who God is through Jesus. But it says in verse 28, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And I kind of pass over that part, but it hit me this time. And it, was, it took the voice of Julia Church in our neighborhood group who said, this is crazy that she left her jar I'm like, wait, what? She, she left her jar. The thing that she came with, the, the reason she came to, to the well, her whole purpose was reoriented. And she's, she went back to the village and left it. It wasn't important anymore. The, thing that, the things that she had been bowing to, the things that she had been perceiving as important, weren't important. That she went to tell others about Jesus and his goodness. And, um, well, as we wrap up, I just want to share personally for me, I came to this place where, um, I think I'd been bowing to the way that people view me or my people's perception of me. I'd been bowing to some other things too. And I, I just felt like there's this moment where I was feeling discouraged. I was feeling like, God, you have the wrong guy. I don't know if I should be a pastor. I don't know if this is working. Maybe maybe this maybe this is the wrong occupation. Maybe I'm the, the wrong person for the job. I was feeling like I hit a ceiling, like this is it, and then now it's to the end of my life, just kind of kind of fade out. I'll be a good dad and a good pastor, and that'll kind of be it, and that'll be great. Tuck away in the grave, and there there's a wrap. So this is really dark thoughts, but really kind of discouraging. and um, a person said to me that um, maybe you just need to go deeper. Maybe you need to go deeper where there are no ceilings." I, th- I thought, hmm, i've been I've been trying to achieve, I've been trying to go above and do stuff when, in fact, I think the call was to go deeper, and I think the call is to go deeper where there are no ceilings because God is a vast ocean we can swim in him we can there's so much to explore 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10 in the message says the spirit not content to flit around the surface dives into the depths of God and it's in that place i want to i want to come and have complete surrender or as jenny sang this morning keep us far from our vices and deliver us from these prisons we, we have so many things that we bow to, that we come to, that we worship, that are shaping us. But God's inviting us to go deeper, to go deeper into him. And so with that, I want to invite us to come to the table. This is a place that's open for all, a place for us to kind of reorient our desires, to leave our jars, whatever they may be. Maybe you've come this morning with a jar that you think is super important, and it probably is but you've come with something that you're fixated on, that you're focused on, and maybe God's calling you to lay that jar down and come and pick up a new one and come and be filled and come and go deep into him. Uh, So with that, let's pray, and then we'll come to the table.